0: So we, friends, are continuing this, uh, this journey that we started a couple weeks ago, and, uh, and the journey that we started a couple weeks ago was, um, was really focused on what, what we decided to do to start the new year, is that we want to just dive into the Gospels really deeply and just just reencounter the stories, the character, the message of Jesus, and, and be reminded how much good news is there. Right? The gospel, The word gospel means good news. So it's the good news according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's, that's what it is. We just learned this word gospel. But we're talking about something that is intended to be received as good news. And it's not just the last two chapters that are good news. It's the whole thing. And, and, and so we're going to talk about how those last chapters impact the rest of the story. We're going to talk about the cross and about the power of it and the complexity and beauty of it during Advent. Or during Lent. Sorry, wrong holiday season in the church calendar, but uh, but this time we're journeying through the book of Mark for uh, a few weeks, for the next I think five more weeks, and we're just going to say how are these stories good news? What are they? What good news does does God have for us in the midst of them? And uh, and and some of them have like a great big idea, like that is is easy, and some of them are just a springboard to something else. But some stories are so beautiful and so multifaceted. Uh, that to try to kind of fit them into a a single theme or just like a big idea to take with you risks like doing an injustice to what God might desire to to stir in us. And so uh, so today we're going to look at a passage that's a little weird and a little mysterious, uh, but it's full of good news. And so we're just going to kind of see what the Spirit speaks about it. Um, I read about a pastor who said that uh, in 40 years of ministry, the three questions that he was asked the most are, What happens when I die? Uh, can I lose my salvation? And what's the deal with the pigs? So, <laughs> we're going to take a look at the third of those, um, arguably the least significant of those questions, um, but, uh, but we're going to take a look at a story from Mark 5 today, and, uh, and it's the story about a bunch of pigs, uh, and, and much more than that. Um, but I'm going to hop right in. So let's do this thing. And, uh, and then I'm going to tell you another story that is related to it. And we're going to see what God stirs on the other side of it. So the story that we're about to encounter has five parts. Okay? And so the first part is the description of a man who is suffering. Quite simple. Second part is uh, the source of his suffering gets revealed. All right? The third part is the action of Jesus. The fourth part is the response of the town... And the final part is the response of the man, all right? So we get a glimpse of this man, the reason why he's going through what he's going through. Then we get how Jesus responds, or what Jesus does. Then we get how the town responds, and then the individual, all right? So we've got this, we we get this glimpse from all these angles at what's happening. All right, so let me tell you one thing that's happened right before this. Right before this is a real adventure that happens on a boat with Jesus and the disciples. Actually, it happens first to the disciples, and then Jesus joins them. Well, um, I'm sorry. Jesus, I don't want to get into that story because I told myself if I do that, then we're going to lose time on this one. Jesus calms a storm by speaking truth to it. And the question that they ask at the end is, who is this man? That's what you need to know. That's all you need to know. That's the question that they're asking. Who is this Jesus who calms a storm, sleeps on a boat in the midst of it, calms a storm, and he says, Quiet, be still to all of creation. Okay, so here we go. Let's hop in. (sighs) All right, we're told in, so I just want you to get an image um, of what what a cave tomb area would have looked like in the ancient Near East, all right? So I know the lights aren't great for this, but just just imagine that this is our setting, okay? Okay. The disciples have been on the boat for a long time. It's been a rough night. They're terrified. They're also in awe of Jesus. And they land on the other side. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. All right? Um, the, the region of the Gerasenes, the, Gerasene, the, the town of Gerasa was on the other side of Galilee. Okay? On the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so, so this was a primarily Gentile land. So this is the first time that we get a glimpse of Jesus interacting with people that are outside of the Jewish people. All right? When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So here's our original description. I want you to take a moment and be, this is one of the most detailed descriptions of any person in the entire New Testament. And I want you to be uncomfortable with the suffering that is presented here. Look at the detail that Mark wants to present us with. No one could bind him anymore. He had been subject to abuse. Lived in the tombs, a place of death, a place of uncleanness. Driven by an unclean spirit. He had had to fight with people. No one was strong enough to subdue him. We're giving this, this terrifying image, someone that's dangerous, someone that's almost beastly. Night and day, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Someone who was suffering. Suffering deeply. Tormented. Notice the detail here. All right. When he saw Jesus from a distance, this man who in every single way was a full outsider, really unclean, not Jewish, possessed, ostracized from his own community, He runs, all right? He saw Jesus from a distance. He ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name. I don't know if we're supposed to pick up some irony here or not. But in God's name, don't torture me. He appeals to God's name for mercy. Or at least something appeals in him. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now it's interesting, Legion, if we say something about Legion, what's it mean? These days. You can answer. Big group, right? Just means a lot. And, and there was truth to that too. But there was only one time and one way that the word legion was actually used at this time. And that was to talk about a specific group of Roman soldiers. A legion of Roman soldiers was 5,000 soldiers strong and an additional 5,000 in support personnel. So the 10th Roman legion, which we're going to get into in a minute was 10,000 people strong occupying Palestine and the entire area at this time, and they did for 300 years. So, So Legion brings something to mind, but we'll get back to that in a second. We are Legion. My name is Legion, for we are many. A massive army inside this poor, poor man. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs we'll go to the next slide, was feeding on the nearby hillside. Okay, So again, pigs denote, I know that all of your modern sensibilities, just put them aside for a second. Pigs denote unclean animals, right? Pigs, you couldn't eat them um, in Jewish culture. So pigs were the epitome. You remember the story of the, uh, the prodigal son, how he winds up with the pigs? That story, winding up with the pigs, is intended to tell us that he was as far away from God's presence as he could possibly get. Like he was just not living in any way the heart and the design and the desires of God. He was pulling himself as far away as he could get. So, we get a glimpse of pigs again. A large herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank... Into the lake and were drowned. The lake, the sea, the place of chaos in Hebrew understanding. The sea was very evil and wicked. That's why all the disciples are always terrified. So, so these, these, uh, these demons get sent into pigs and the pigs rush down. The demons think they're going to be rescued and instead they're destroyed. Rushing down this hillside and drowning, kind of dissolving back into the sea and the chaos from which they came. Okay, so we get Jesus' response. We've gotten a description of the man. We've gotten a reason for his suffering. All right, so here's the, uh, oh, sorry, we're not quite done yet. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in, his, in the town and countryside, and many people went out to see what had happened. So it creates a commotion, a big commotion. Unsurprisingly, 2,000 pigs running down a hillside would be a story today as well. So let's continue on. So this event happens. All these townspeople, they come back. They're all riled up. They want to know more. And take a look at this. As Jesus, I'm sorry, when they they came to Jesus, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. Don't read the next sentence yet. Or the end of that one. Just listen to this. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. What's the next line say? And they were afraid. Here was a man who had been terrifying and beastly. A man who had been abused and, and, and had, had had to be restrained Probably in some way for his own safety, but also for the safety of others. And he's at peace. He's calm. He's sitting there. He's restored. And the townspeople—they're afraid. Does seem a little, maybe a little backwards? They're afraid. Those who had seen it told the people everything that happened. <clears throat> to the demon-possessed man. Interesting that Mark, when he's talking himself, when he's writing this, he says the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, but when he talks about how the townspeople are talking about him, they're telling everybody what happened to the demon-possessed man. We should not miss the fact that there is a difference in the description there. Mark talks about the man who had been, had, had these experiences. The townspeople look at the guy who's in his right mind and still call him the demon-possessed man. At least I think it's worth noting. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told, um, and, and told about the pigs as well. This man is healed. These pigs went to the, just, would, got destroyed, ran into the the lake, and what happens? What happens? Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I'm just letting all of this sit with you for just a moment. This wonderful man is healed, but there's a cost. So please, please leave us. Leave us. As Jesus was getting into the boat, now Mark's telling the story again. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Literally, to be with him is the word there. Um, Jesus did not let him, but he said this. Go to your hometown, or go go home to your own people. Can you imagine... The phrase go home, he didn't say go back. He said go home because the man had not been home for many years. Go home. You have a home that is going to be available again to your own people. Those who had been ostracized from, who had not been able to be at home with for so long, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, that was the region of ten cities on on this coast, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Weird story, huh? What do we do with it? From the top level down, it's not hard to take a story like this, and it's embedded in other miraculous moments in this early section of Mark, and say that there's a big story here that Jesus is radical, radical, healer, powerful over all. No case is too far gone. That's a literal reading of this story and it's a good one. It's completely valid. What a glimpse of the power of Jesus. But there's other things that are happening here too. So in addition to the big story, I'm going to give you two other ways to interpret this story as valuable that might be relevant to us today in addition to the big open overarching umbrella. One is rooted in the historical context, and another is an opportunity for us to let the story kind of speak to us about a contemporary issue. So let's talk about the historical context. You you, you saw how I I mentioned this this legion thing, right? I want you to notice all of the other uh, language in this story that has to do uh, with Roman army, military language. When when he says, my name is Legion, let me tell you without any doubt that all of the readers would have immediately thought about the Roman occupation at the time. Okay? All right. So here's what's really fascinating. Um, the 10th Roman Legion is very famous. There's lots of history about it. And the 10th Roman Legion was the group that occupied Palestine until, um, and the entire region, the entire area, uh, until about in in the 4th century so in the 300s all right so we're talking that this was going to happen for a long time this group in here and they had shields and they had insignias and they had their own coins and do you know what do you know what the symbol was for their coins and for their shields guess it was a pig yes Okay, and so this is one of the old coins. It was actually a boar, like a wild pig, but guess what? There's no difference. We talked about this a couple years ago, that it only takes one generation of pigs that are being farmed to live out in the wild before they grow tusks and become wild boars. Same thing. That's where all the boars are, like in down south. When people go and they, they hunt like boars, wild boars. I, was, I had an encounter with a boar when I was in Florida once. I didn't tell you that story. I only told the alligator story. But, uh, but it, they're just pigs that got off the farm and then went, got real wild. And they can still be dangerous. Don't worry. But, but they're the same thing. So anyways, you can apparently, if you're like a fan of like the 10th Roman Legion, you can get a wall hanging still for your, your bedroom. Um, not quite sure what that's all about, but hey, you can sell anything on the internet these days. So, so anyways, I want you to take note that, that the pigs... Were an emblem for this world, this this Roman army and the 10th Legion. I also want you to know that the word for herd, a large herd of pigs, the Greek word agale, agele, is the same word for new recruits that the army used, okay? So a herd, a crowd, is the same word for the new recruits. So, so there is a subtle thing happening here that's not missed by the original readers. That Jesus is taking this legion, this army, and he's seeing the new recruits. And he's giving some political commentary on all of this. About the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the, of the world and the oppressive systems. And so, so you can bet that it was not lost on the original hearers that Jesus casts a legion into the sea, much similar maybe to Moses crossing the Red Sea during the Exodus and the waters surrounding the army that was giving chase. And so there's this, this interesting, subtle glimpse of all of this, this world that's happening where Jesus goes and he says, hey... My kingdom's more powerful than any of the other kingdoms. My word is more powerful than any of the other rulers. Don't miss that. They'll meet their destruction. Oppressive oppressive regimes will never have ultimate power over Jesus. Just the opposite. So it's it's a charged story underneath the surface of God's kingdom overpowering all other kingdoms. So that's just one more interpretation that you can have. By the way, when we talk about uh, various ways to look and see stories in the Gospels, one does not negate the other. That's the beauty of this. You can read it completely at face value and see exactly what happened to this man, but you can also see how Mark wanted to help us notice certain things as well by the way he tells the story about the nature of of the kingdom of God. All right, a second way that this story can, can be read is by considering it in light... Of the real impact in our world of mental illness on an individual and their community, uh, there's there's some debate. I don't think any of this is an either or. Some people might say that when when the Bible tells story about demon possession that that was mental illness, and they didn't have a framework for it. I reject that. I don't think that that is a fair thing to just throw out all of that. However, on the flip side, there was no healthy understanding of the reality of mental illness. So often, when someone struggled with mental illness, it was often understood as an impure spirit or or a demon. So so there is crossover. So, anyways, I, I tell you this because um, <coughs> Christine Guth, who is a um, she has has a masters of divinity and she works for the Anabaptist Disab- Disabilities Network, she wrote a retelling of this story. Okay. Um, 15 years ago, that honors the understandings of the original readers while allowing the story to speak to contemporary experiences of mental illness. This is something that the church has to keep talking about because it affects so many of us and our loved ones. And, and the more that we can understand how incredibly difficult it is to manage relationships and how much people become ostracized when they are struggling with mental illness internally but also in their communities, until we do that, we're not learning the beauty and the wholeness of the kingdom of God and God's community. So, um, I want to read this to you. It's not short. It'll take probably about 10 minutes or so. Uh, but I want you to hear this retelling of the story um, to speak to, to, to it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if it's helpful to close your eyes, that's great. Um, and uh, if, it's, if it's helpful just to, to lean in and listen, that's fine too. It's called Legion No More. And the part that I didn't read uh, picks up after... The moment has happened. And this man comes to grips with what's going on with the pigs and has, is filled with completely inappropriate laughter. There's such a peace and calmness that he can't help but absolutely start laughing by seeing all of what was in him create this massive, massive disaster of the pigs. And Jesus laughs with him. After the pandemonium had subsided, I sat a long time with Jesus, reveling in the peace and quiet. The swine herds had fled in the direction of Gerasa, and Jesus' companions had set off to collect firewood, leaving the two of us alone on the shore, watching the sunset. After a long silence, Jesus broke into the quiet. How long had they been torturing you? He asked with a sympathetic smile. Must have been at least 15 years by now, I offered after a long pause. I don't know exactly, ever since my father died. Something about Jesus' quiet respect for my ordeal invited trust. I also was impressed that nothing I had said and done earlier had scared him off. Dad died at the hands of Roman soldiers, I continued, spilling out a story I had long since held inside. I was just a boy. Dad and I had walked together to Gadara, the next village, to buy supplies. I remember I was so proud because for the first time he had chosen me and not any of my older brothers to go along with him to help carry stuff home. We had made our purchases and set out for home in the late afternoon. I was carrying the bag of salt. A group of Roman soldiers accosted us along a lonely stretch of road. One soldier challenged Dad and began to threaten him. He accused my father of giving him the evil eye. Dad pleaded for mercy, but the irritated soldier pulled out his sword and ran him through on the spot. I ditched the salt, ran, and climbed to a nearby tree, terrified that the soldier was coming after me next. The Romans ignored me, however, and struck my unarmed father again and again with their swords. I watched it all, coward that I was, perched high in the tree. I did nothing to help him. Once they figured he was dead, the soldiers wiped their bloody swords on the grass grabbed the supplies we had purchased and stuffed them in their packs, and they left Dad there in the road, motionless and covered with blood. A long time after they had passed out of sight, I climbed down from the tree and pulled with all my strength on Dad's cold, stiff hand, trying to drag him off the road. I couldn't budge him an inch. I didn't want to abandon him, but the approaching darkness terrified me, so I left him there and hightailed it for home. When my brothers and I came back the next morning, he was gone. Jesus and I sat in silence in the deepening shadows, watching the flickering blaze his companions had managed to kindle some hundred yards away near their beached boat. That's the night the spirits first arrived, I continued. I could hear them moaning on the other side of the road, behind the grove of trees. Then I could hear them inside me. Coward, coward, they whispered. At first, (laughs) they whispered. But after that, every time I ever happened to be alone at night, more spirits would sneak in. And after there got to be enough of them in there, they got real bold. They started talking and clamoring in broad daylight. Sometimes they yelled at me in my father's voice. Sometimes they used my brother's voices. The worst was when they were yelling at me in my mother's voice. They would taunt me. Go climb a tree, little boy. They were the worst when the soldiers would provoke them. Any time a soldier came anywhere near, the whole chorus of spirits would start chanting, Coward! Coward! Climb a tree! I'd take off running as if I could outrun them, but it didn't help. One day, a whole legion of soldiers marched down the highway through the middle of Garasa, thousands of them. I took off running, as usual, trying to get away from the heckling voices of the spirits. This time I tripped and fell and cut my leg open on a sharp rock. I screamed bloody murder at the pain. That's how I discovered that the spirits would shut up at the sight of blood and the sound of screaming. I started calling those spirits legion. So after that, whenever the legion got riled up, I'd find a sharp rock and slash myself and scream. And that would shut them up for a time. My mother didn't like this much. Ha, that's an understatement. It worried her a lot. I think one of the spirits must have gotten out and attacked her. She started crying a lot. Every day, shutting herself up inside the house and hardly ever eating. She would be awake all night and sleep all day long. My brothers got so worried about her that they decided they had to do something to keep the spirits from attacking her and me. They thought that if they made chains and shackles and chained me down, then I couldn't do any more cutting. Without being able to draw blood to scare the legion, though the only thing I could do was scream when they started tormenting me. I screamed until my throat hurt. The spirits got much, much worse once my brother chained me up. I tore at those chains night and day and finally managed to break free. But right away, my brothers would catch me and chain me up again. This happened I don't know how many times until I got smart and broke out of the chains at night. I cut myself until the blood flowed and the spirits kept quiet. And then I fled out here to the tombs where I knew no one would bother me. The spirits of the tombs and the night kept their distance. The legion I brought with me must have scared them off. Along with my blood and my screams, of course. I was afraid I would starve to death living out here in the tombs, but I needn't have worried. Next morning, Mom followed the drops of blood and figured out where I was hiding. After that, every week or so, she would show up with a bag of parched grain or dried fish or something, leaving it in an empty tomb. I didn't want to upset her with all my scars and all, so I would hide when she came. But I knew, but she knew I was here because of the fresh footprints, I guess. She must have unclean spirits, too. Why else would she keep coming out here to the tombs? I don't know how many years I've been out here, long enough to wear my clothes to rags. There's nothing left of them. At this, Jesus took off his cloak and thrust it toward me. Here, he said, take this. I have a spare one in the boat. He wrapped the coarse wool around my shoulders. I couldn't believe how warm it felt in the chill evening breeze. What a difference. I'd almost forgotten what it was like to be warm after sundown. You know, Jesus, I said, Those swine herds are likely to be back at sunrise with reinforcements ready to give you trouble. All those dead pigs floating in the water, that's their entire life savings. What do you say? After you and your friends finish with supper, we get in your boat and row back to the other side of the lake. If you let me join your gang, I'll do anything you ask. I'll leave everything and follow you. Not that I have anything to leave. No one around here is going to want me back in the family even if the spirits are gone. In the end, Jesus didn't take my advice. His men couldn't face a boat trip in the dark. They'd had such a rough crossing on the trip over. They ended up stalling so long that they were still around when the folks from Garasa showed up the next morning. The town folks were so astonished to see me sitting calmly beside Jesus wearing clothes, not screaming, all the blood washed off of me, all the cuts neatly bandaged that they kept a polite distance from Jesus and just begged him to leave the district. Lucky for him. As Jesus and his men were preparing to comply and heading for their boat, Jesus drew me aside. Your people need to hear all the things God has done for you. And you're the one to tell them, he said. It won't be easy, but God's mercy is great. Go home to your own people. God's mercy, I already knew. Counting on God's continuing mercy, I shoved the boat out into the water and headed home to my people, wrapping Jesus' cloak tight around him, wrapping Jesus' cloak tight around myself. For months, I regaled friends and family and anyone who would listen with the story of all that Jesus had done for me. That's the end of the story, as Mark and Luke would have it. I march off into the sunrise and no one ever hears from me again. It makes a great ending, but you have to know it isn't as simple as all that. Jesus drove the Legion out, but I don't think I'll ever be finished wrestling with the spirits that want to take Legion's place. Everybody knows when unclean spirits go out of a person, they wander around looking for somewhere to rest. The legion drowned, but they must have already put out the word to their wondering friends that I made a good place to hang out. When one of their buddies would come in from the desert to find the legion gone and the place empty and swept and put in order, it would go out and find more spirits, even more evil than itself, and try to move in. This is when my hard work started. I had gotten a taste of peace and quiet, and I did not intend to let a bunch of them set up housekeeping and start tyrannizing me again. I had begun to see what a toll worrying about me had taken on my mother, and I vowed to learn other ways of coping with life besides slashing and screaming. The first thing I did, I stopped keeping secrets. I told the rest of my family everything that happened the day my father died, something I had never done. When I told them the truth, I learned that my family did not blame me. They took me back. I learned to stop blaming myself for not protecting my father from the soldiers. I was just a boy after all. My brothers assured me that even if all of them had come along on that fateful trip, they couldn't have deterred a dozen armed Roman soldiers. To try would have been suicide. Climbing a tree was the smart thing to do, they assured me. Roving spirits try the hardest to move in on me whenever the Roman soldiers come through town again. When that happens, I have to fight with those unclean spirits. I have learned always to call for reinforcements. I get friends or family close at hand calling on God, and they send the spirits back to where they came from. Sending the Romans back to where they came from is another matter, though. They don't show any signs of leaving. Yet I have learned that hating them was like opening a door and inviting evil to walk right in. The Romans may occupy our land, but I don't have to let them tyrannize my mind with hatred. Now that God has wrapped me in his mercy, I know the days of this evil empire are numbered. Cutting myself and screaming gets the spirits to stop taunting me, but only for a little while. It also lets some of them sneak in silently while I'm not looking. I still fall back to being vulnerable when the old terrors and hatred rise up. I try, though, to use the truth as a weapon against the spirits. Truth is like a gushing spring of water to evil spirits. It touches them and they dissolve. They hate the truth, and when I proclaim it loud and clear, the spirits back off in fear and head for the desert. The truth about Jesus, the son of the highest God who makes the spirits obey him, is a strong weapon in the struggle. I have learned that Jesus, the man who drove out my legion, who shared in my... Who shared my laughter, who gave me the cloak off of his back, was crucified. But God raised him to life again. More and more of the folks in our area are coming to believe now. All these believers stand ready to help each other when we need it. Together, we keep making our stand against the evil spirits. With the help of Jesus and his spirit living in us, all those unclean spirits leave us alone. Now, a story like that is not scripture. It's using one's imagination. But I think there's a spot for it to strike a chord within us and to remind us of the alienation of so many who suffer and to remind us of the hope of Jesus. But Jesus desires a partnership between his spirit and us as community to be able to create love and family for so many who suffer for so many different reasons. (sighs) All right. So what is the good news to receive? We're going to wrap up our time here. And I want you to think about something. And like I said, we're not doing one big point today. Not one big idea. I want you to sit with this story and let God speak. But I'm going to give you some things maybe to springboard from. So what's some of the good news to receive? One of the most beautiful things about this story is that Jesus always crosses boundaries to bring healing. Mark is very intentional about showing us that they went to the other side. To the other. To people who were outside of the traditional assumptions of belonging to the ones who had been pushed away, to the unclean ones, Jesus is always willing to cross boundaries. Jesus is also powerful over even our most overwhelming demons. There is power that Jesus has over the things that control and condemn us, whether they be of the spirit world or within us. We can take such good news out of that, such heart in the fact that the power of Jesus knows no end. Jesus is a threat to empire and all of its forms of oppression. We should remember that a story like this contains all sorts of hints that the power of the kingdom of God, though it looks like love, is like a blade of grass that can pierce concrete and create cracks in what looks strong and overpowering. As we continue to live in the humble, other-oriented, upside-down kingdom, we will see that it holds more power than the power that the world seems to be obsessed with. And finally, every life is of incomparable value in God's eyes. Every life is of incomparable value in God's eyes. It doesn't matter that someone else is seen as a lost cause. That's never how Jesus looks at people. And that should give us hope. And also that should challenge us. Because we're going to talk about the opportunities to grow as well. So here's a few opportunities to grow. Number one, this is a hard one. Just put on the lens of the townspeople for a second because we all play that role. We need to learn to celebrate God's liberation of another despite how uncomfortable it makes us. Okay? We, the, the townspeople we, we see, had a choice between celebrating God's sa- salvation of one man who was suffering or economics or status quo. And we see that they are far more uncomfortable. We see no sense of joy in the people that a life was saved. Or that this huge demonic presence was destroyed. They could have gone and terrorized the town, right? That could have been another story. Just go free. Instead of being put away, being destroyed. And so, so I think it's really on, we need to sometimes be honest that, that we grow terrified and uncomfortable with people who no longer fit the framework that we've created for them. I was talking with a few of you earlier and the idea that this is, now we've, we've been learning so much about prison reform and about loving and caring for people who have been incarcerated and who are incarcerated. One of the big challenges is that we like, as a culture, we like knowing that some people are the messed up ones. There's a tendency to want the crazy disruptive people out there to continue to be crazy and disruptive. Life is more straightforward when some people can be labeled as irredeemable lost causes. This is called scapegoating, and it has been present since the beginning of human culture. It is easy for us to put people in boxes because it, more, it, it helps us define ourselves as better than. It's a constant temptation that Jesus desires to break down. Letting Jesus change our perspective is a costly worldview. People need to be seen differently, and the only way that happens is through proximity. When we get to know the stories and the lives of people, Okay, it's it matters so much. In fact, that's why I think that Jesus didn't let this man go with him. The only way for a place like Garasa to be changed was for them to see someone who lived a different story of both transformation at the moment that Jesus turns something, but also ongoing change to say, you need to see me for who I am. Not just a a, a disembodied story, but for who I am right in front of you. And that eventually will bring transformation in people's lives. (sighs) Along with that, we need to learn from and be led by those who have suffered. This is the first man that's actually commissioned by Jesus in the whole Gospel of Mark. The first one sent out. When he gathered the disciples... He he gathered them in order to be with him, Mark says, and to send them out, but they had not been sent out yet. They stayed with Jesus through this time. So this is the first man who gets commissioned and sent in the the whole gospel. And, And sometimes we need to understand that we can't see things as a culture, we can't see things as people that other people who have suffered can. I know it might be hard for us sometimes because we have a church that is full of a whole bunch of people who have been deeply wounded from churches. And I know sometimes, some, it, it's easy to be like, oh, come on folks, let's just get over it. But we need to understand that the wounds that exist, we, that is a part of the stories of our people. And we need to be able to hear them and learn from them so that we as a church don't make the same mistakes. We need to learn to, to say, what can you teach us? What are our blind spots? That's a big part of, this, of our movement with the task force for, toward racial justice is to say, hey, do we have blind spots where, where it might be harder for someone who's not from kind of the dominant white culture to come in and, and be a part of our church in all of its fullness? What can we change to reflect the kingdom in its fullness? That's going to be beautiful, but it has to do with letting people who have been marginalized speak up and teach us. So it's important that we, that we honor and understand that those who have suffered in every single way that we can imagine often become our most valuable teachers. But often as people, we want to write them off and say, well, you, you're kind of damaged, you know. Let's let this story teach us about this man who goes out as the first missionary in Mark's gospel. And finally, here we go, let's put ourselves in now, instead of being the townspeople, let's put ourselves in, in the realm of this man, okay? And, and the, the um, opportunities to grow here is that telling our stories in partnership with our changed lives is how we show the world the mercy of Jesus. Telling our stories in partnership with our changed lives is how we show the world the mercy of Jesus. Jesus could have said, yeah, can you please come with me? This is going to be killer tomorrow night when we're at that town. I'm just going to give you the mic and just let you do your thing, man. Like, huge evangelistic opportunity. Just give your testimony. He could have gone on a tour with this guy, right? He was a gold mine of transformation. But that's not what was needed. What was needed to transform a town, he said, stay here. You have been absolutely transformed by God's mercy, they need to not just hear that it happened and it was weird, but they need to see you every day. Hear the good news every day till they can no longer write you off, till they can no longer deny you, until they can no longer deny that there is good news that comes from encountering Jesus. There's so much beauty. So much beauty, friends. All right. I don't know where you see yourself. Maybe in the man, maybe in the townspeople. Maybe the disciples trying to wrap their mind around Jesus and what he's about. But let's let's pray that Jesus helps us move toward healing and wholeness in our own lives. Let's pray that Jesus helps move us toward a life that welcomes God's kingdom in our world. And God's kingdom in our neighbors. And in God's kingdom in the people that we might have trouble even imagining God's kingdom taking root in. All right. Lord, we trust that a story like this has something beautiful to teach us and shape us through your spirit. We, uh, we want to be healed, Lord, but we also want to be agents of your healing. We want to welcome your healing in others despite what it might cost us. We want to see justice come in the world and compassion, despite what it might cost us, Lord. We want to celebrate when truth prevails. Amen.